Good morning. Good morning to you online as well. You know, we just sang that song that we're no longer slaves to fear. In Christ, we've been released from that. We've been freed from that. And yet, we live in what many have called a culture of fear today. In fact, I read a book by that title in a media literacy class that I took in college, and it was a startling thought to realize that was about 20 years ago when I was preparing this message. And I don't think of my college days as 20 years ago, but it was 20 years ago, and I mention that detail because I am not offering a political commentary here today. I'm actually talking about something that came onto my awareness over 20 years ago in a class that was focused primarily on how news reporting had changed in the 1990s. And the class really looked at how the news used to be reported from the dawn of television news all the way up in through the 80s and into the early 90s. There was a trusted figure that read the news to you from 5.30 to 6.30 or 6.30 to 7 or whatever it was, an hour, half hour, and then you went on with your day and you came back the next day to hear a trusted figure read the news to you. And then they started to add, you know, a little picture that might show you a few things that were pertinent to what was being shared. But in the 90s, that changed, didn't it? It changed drastically. And the dawn of 24-hour news cycles and 24-hour news stations and ticker lines, and as computers enabled them to add more and more to the broadcast, now there were two or three talking heads on the side, and there was one person, and there was a ticker across the top and a ticker across the bottom and some live updates on the side to the point that we are today where there's no way that you can take in all the information that is being shared in a half-hour news broadcast. So you have to come back the next day, and you have to come back the next half hour and catch what you missed the half hour before, but they've added something. And so they commented on and looked at, from a statistical standpoint, how much of the news had turned to something that would elicit fear or anxiety in some way. And so news became increasingly fear-based, increasingly overwhelming, and increasingly constant. And the media literacy class, which I just took as an elective, I was like, I gotta do something, and this one fits the schedule, so I'll do that one. It really, I think, is one of the most important classes I took in college, because it reframed how I view the news over the last 20 years, and it helped me to become more aware of how fear is being pushed towards us. And directly or indirectly, consciously or unconsciously, nobody can really doubt that fear sells. Fear sells. It fear captivates. And fear keeps us coming back. And the reality is that making people afraid is one of the easiest ways to either control them or predict their behavior. And so that's why they do it. Because it's easier to predict our behavior if we're afraid. It's easier to control our behavior if we're afraid. And so for decades, people have been manufacturing and capitalizing on fear. Now, that's just a reality. Sociology has confirmed that many times over the last 20 years. And yet in the last 16 months, we saw the pervasive sort of low to mid-grade fear reach new levels. And some of that was very legitimate, and some of that was sensationalized, and it was really hard to tell what was 
worthy of our concern and what was fear being pushed towards us. And those lines get blurrier and blurrier. But one thing is for sure. Fear is a primal human emotion that has been around ever since the fall. It was not around pre-fall, okay? Before the fall of man in Genesis chapter 3, there was no fear. Nobody had to deal with fear. There was no being afraid. The first time that we hear about fear in the history of the world is in Genesis 3.10, right after the fall, right after man and woman have sinned by eating the forbidden fruit, God comes and He doesn't see them. And so He asks, where are you? Not because He doesn't know, okay? He's still omniscient, all-knowing, all-powerful, everywhere, all the time. He knows exactly where they are, but he asks the question for them, for their benefit. And the response in Genesis 3.10 from Adam is, I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. I was afraid. That's the first time man had ever experienced fear. It was right after the fall, the fall from grace. And sadly, humans have been afraid and hiding ever since. Ever since that moment when fear entered, somewhere, someone has been afraid. Someone has been hiding. And most of us experience fear on a regular basis. And some of those fears are good. They alert us to danger. They allow us to take a different trajectory. And some of those fears are not good, and they are not legitimate. And they should not be controlling our behavior, and they should not be drawing our attention away from God. And so that's what we're going to be looking at today, if you haven't guessed. Uh, we're wrapping up our series titled A Firm Foundation, where we've been looking particularly at the Old Testament as a firm foundation, as a source of solid truth in a shifting world. Our world is shifting. It has been shifting in one way or another ever since the fall. And so we have a source in Scripture of solid truth in a shifting world. Now, a couple of weeks ago, I preached a message titled, Fear God. Many of you were here for that, or you watched it online, or you missed that one, but you went to the podcast, or you went to the app, or you went to YouTube, and you found that, and you watched that message. And in that message, we talked about this idea that fearing God is a firm foundation for all of life. That was our bottom line two weeks ago. And we talked about how fearing God, that, that fear of the Lord, is not the same as a, as a terror towards the Lord or being afraid of the Lord, but it has to do with reverence and awe and deep, deep respect and a willingness to exalt God and exalt the things of God and exalt the Word of God and exalt our relationship with God and keep that first and foremost in our lives. And so this week we're going to look at sort of the flip side of that, the, this message titled Fear Not. Because what's interesting, even though Scripture tells us repeatedly to fear God or to have the fear of the Lord in our lives, every time He shows up from the very beginning, from His first appearances, He's telling us, fear not. Fear not. And so there's something there, and I wanted to dig into that, and I wanted to engage that a little bit. And I preached a message titled, Fear Not, less, a little over two years ago. Some of you were here for that as well. We were doing a series called All the Feels, and we were walking through Psalms, and we were looking at human emotion as it's presented in the Psalms. And so it's tricky as a pastor to preach a message 
that you just preached a couple years ago and not just preached the same message. So that message kind of stands on its own, and it gets a little more into the practical, like how to move beyond fear and how to actually not fear. And so if you're feeling like there's some gaps in this message, which you may very well feel that way, go back onto our website, go to the sermon archive that's available in the media tab, and find the, all the feels. It's week two of all the feels. It's titled Fear Not. And that will be a very practical exposition of how to move past fear and how to deal with that emotion of fear and use it in a constructive way. Today, we're going to be looking at a foundational passage on fear to fit with our theme, and it's in Genesis chapter 15, verses 1 through 6. So if you have a Bible or you want to grab one from a seat in front of you or you've got one nearby uh, at home or wherever you're listening to this, turn to Genesis chapter 15. It'll be an easy one to find. It's just about six, eight pages in probably, depending on how how many chapters per page your uh, Bible can fit in. But this is as foundational a passage as any in all of Scripture. It's God's covenant with Abraham and, by extension, his descendants. So the nation of Israel and the new Israel, which are those who are new covenant believers in Jesus Christ. And so this is a covenant that God has made. Every time God issues a new covenant, it builds upon and enhances the previous covenant. And so we're still sort of operating on this covenant in many ways. And Jesus instituted a new covenant, and we've come to faith in Christ in that new covenant, and yet God is honoring the promises that were made in this covenant with Abraham and with his descendants. And just to kind of catch you up, in Genesis chapter 12, we're introduced to Abraham. The first 11 chapters are kind of cosmic meta-history from the fall, or sorry, the creation to the fall to the first humans, uh, the covenant with Noah, and then we're introduced to Abram in Genesis chapter 12. And it's the call and the promise that's extended to Abram in Genesis chapter 12 that sort of gets reiterated here in Genesis 15. Now, in Genesis chapter 12, God simply calls Abram. He says, Abram, get up and go to a place that I will show you. And the significant thing is Abram's response. He got up and went. He left everything behind. He left his family behind, took his wife, took a nephew, and headed off to a place that he had never been before following God. And so we see a commitment to God, an obedience and a faith, and you could say a demonstrated fear of the Lord that Abram had from the very beginning. And he doesn't get it all right. He doesn't do everything perfectly. There's ups and there's downs. He goes to Egypt and he tells lies and he deceives and, and he does this out of fear that they would kill him and take his wife because his wife was really beautiful. And then he comes back from Egypt and, and he and Lot separate and he takes the high road on that. So we see an, an illustration of his character. And then even though he took the high road on the separation with Lot and gave him the, the nicest you know, first pick of the pasture land, Lot falls into the hands of some enemy kings, and Abram comes to his rescue and delivers him. And at the end of Genesis 14, Abram has a, an encounter with Melchizedek. And I'm just giving you broad strokes on all this. It's really good. You should read your Bible, and you should read commentaries on your Bible, and you should find out what all this means. But Melchizedek is like a, an example of Jesus Christ. And Abram tithes to Melchizedek, a tenth of all the spoils. And so the first time that tithing even comes up in Scripture, it's Abram fearing the Lord, honoring the Lord, holding the Lord in awe and reverence and respect, and tithing, giving a tenth of those spoils to God 
in the form of Melchizedek, who we are just introduced to as priest of God Most High, who was the priest of Salem, Jerusalem. It's all really cool how it all fits together. Read Genesis 1 through 15, then go read Hebrews. You'll have a wonderful afternoon. You'll be blown away at all the connections that you find there. And so that's what's been going on when we come to Genesis 15. And in Genesis 15, God echoes and affirms that call, and he enters into a binding covenant with Abram. And so we're going to pick up in verses 1 through 6 here. I'm going to read the full passage, and then we'll back up, and we'll go a verse or two at a time. But here's what God says in Genesis 15, verses 1 through 6, or here's what is reported to us. After this, after the skirmish with uh, the kings um, and delivering Lot and tithing to Melchizedek, after this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield your very great reward. But Abram said, O sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my estate is Eleazar of Damascus? And Abram said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him, This man will not be your heir, but a son coming from your own body will be your heir. He took him outside and said, Look up at the heavens and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Abraham believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. And so we have to look at these first words that come from God to Abram. As he appears to him in a vision, as the word of the Lord comes to him, he says, do not be afraid, Abram. God comes to him, visits him, speaks to him, and the first words out of his mouth are, do not be afraid, Abram. And he calls him by name. And I read through the first 11 chapters, and I don't see a place where God addresses a human by name in this way. He refers to Cain, he refers to Abel by name, but he does not speak to them and refer to them by name in this way. And I think this really underscores how God is a personal God. He is a relational God. He knew that Abram was afraid. He knew that there was anxiety, there was fear in Abram's heart. And he does not want that fear controlling or manipulating Abram. So the first words out of God's mouth are, do not be afraid. Don't relate to me out of fear, out of being afraid. Hold me in high regard, yes. Worship and obey me, yes. Revere me, yes. But do not be manipulated by fear. God does not use fear to manipulate people. His first words to Abram are, do not be afraid. And then he identifies himself Not as Abram's taskmaster, not as Abram's slaveholder, but as his shield and his very great reward. He says, don't be afraid, Abram. I am not one to be terrified of. I am your shield. I am your protector. He says, I represent your protection. I represent your provision. I'm your very great reward. You can trust me. You can revere me. You can hold me in high regard and know that you are safe and secure in that relationship. You don't need to respond to me 
out of terror and fear that I'm going to get you if you mess up. And so it's in that context that Abram can respond to God and reveal the fear that is in his heart. And so he says in verse 2, O sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is Eleazar of Damascus. You've given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. He reveals his fear. His fear is that he will not have an heir. His fear is that all that this is, he has amassed will, will pass to someone else, that his line will be extinguished. That, and this really mattered. It mattered more in that day than it does today. Uh, and so it, it's insightful that this is his, his fear. And yet he begins with, O oh, sovereign Lord. He begins with a humble recognition of God's sovereignty. He begins with an understanding of who God is and who he is. And so I had to wonder, do we remain that humble? Do we recognize God's sovereignty when we don't get what we want or what we thought God had promised? Am I the only one in the room that throws a fit when my prayers don't get answered? In my way, in my timeline, somebody else, please raise your hand. Am I the only one? Okay, there's a few people, and I I see a few more smiles. In fact, my darkest days in my entire life came when I convinced myself that God was done with me, that my best days were behind me, and that I was kind of on my own against the spiritual attacks that were coming towards me. And I didn't understand why I just kept getting beat up. I didn't understand why God wasn't fighting hard for me, and I didn't realize that he was. I just couldn't see it. And then he revealed to me in the most profound, powerful moment of my life that he was indeed the constant, that he was interceding for me, that he was standing firm for me, that he was reliable and trustworthy, and that he was with me. He had not left me. He would not forsake me. And so I understand where Abram finds himself here. I understand that it had been 10 years from Genesis 12 2 when God said, as numerous as the sand on the shore will your descendants be, to where he is in Genesis 15. There's 10 years that has has passed. He was 75 when he was called to get up and go, and he's now 85. And so 10 years has passed, and those are 10 pivotal years. It's not like he was 25 and then he was 35, okay? I mean, you, know, you could say, well, there's still a lot of childbearing years left. But he's 85, and, and Scripture tells us that, that his wife, Sarai, is 10 years younger than him, but that puts her at 75. And so it's understandable that he's named a servant as his heir. He's moving on. He's making a contingency plan. And yet he is still recognizing God's sovereignty. He's still referring to him as, oh, sovereign Lord. And that sets up God's response. Then the word of the Lord came to him, to Abram, this man, Eleazar, will not be your heir, but a son coming from your own body will be your heir. He clarifies, he specifies, he reaffirms. And then he took him outside and he said, look up at the stars. Look up at the heavens and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. So he sets the record straight. God sets the record straight. He reminds him of the promise that was made, even though it was made 10 years ago, and even though the last maybe 10 years of childbearing ability have passed, he assures him, Eleazar is not going to be your heir. 
a son from your own body will be your heir. Now, he doesn't tell him how. He just tells him that. And God does this sometimes. And I know we wish that he would tell us exactly how so that as we see it happen, we would be all encouraged. But he just tells him that. He says, this is what's going to happen. He doesn't tell him how. He doesn't tell him when. He just tells him that. And he leaves it to Abram to trust him, to continue to rely upon him. And that is exactly what Abram does. In verse 6, Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. Now, there's pronouns there, so you've got to understand, Abram believed the Lord, and the Lord credited that belief to Abram as righteousness. This is one of the most significant verses in Genesis and perhaps in the Old Testament. It's referred to multiple times, quoted verbatim four times in the New Testament, and it, it underscores this concept that we see throughout the arc of Scripture, that to trust, to believe, to follow, and to do so absolutely and completely is what brings us into right standing with God. That's what that word righteousness means. And so we come into right standing with God. We, We enter into righteousness before God through faith, through belief, through trust. And we see that Abram stopped being afraid. He stopped being afraid that he would not have an heir, and instead he believes God. He believed that God was truthful and trustworthy, and he believed that God was capable. And we really have to believe both of those. We have to believe that he is good and that he is capable, that he is trustworthy, that he's telling us the truth, that his promises can be counted on, and also that he is capable of coming through on the promises he has made. And we have to have both of those even when we can't see, even when the line between the two doesn't appear to us, when it doesn't make sense to us. And we have to recognize that it was that faith and that belief that God credited to Abram as righteousness. It wasn't the tithe that brought Abram into righteousness and right standing with God. It wasn't the victory over the the foreign kings. It wasn't taking the high road and the little disagreement with Lot. It was his belief, it was his faith that God credited to Abram as righteousness. It doesn't say that he obeyed God perfectly forever. In fact, if you read chapter 16, you'll find that he did not. (laughs) That he looked for a human solution, because this goes on and, you know, maybe nine months passed, and it's like, still no baby. And maybe Sarai, his wife, still no baby. I still can't provide him with that heir. So she comes up with this human solution to give her servant girl, Hagar, over to Abram, and that way he'll have an heir from his own body. So it kind of checks the boxes that God had provided, but God had never talked about multiple wives at this point. God had never advocated for that. Scripture merely reports it, does not condone it. In fact, every time there's polygamy, every time there's multiple wives, it's a mess. Read your Old Testament and circle every time somebody takes a second or a third or six hundredth wife, it's a mess. It always goes poorly. God and Scripture are not in favor of this. They merely report it, and we see the mess that is created as a result of it. It always complicates things when we take the human solution. And I see this as actually more, faith, more proof that it was Abram's faith, trust, and belief that made him righteous, not his actions not his actions. It's further proof that believing is greater than doing. 
They're both important. And they both are important to us as believers. But believing is always greater than doing. To do good things for God without belief and without faith and without trust in Jesus Christ does not bring us into salvation, does not bring us into right standing with God, does not bring us into the place of righteousness. Paul makes this crystal clear in Romans chapter 4 and Galatians chapter 3. James addresses it at the end of James chapter 2. And perhaps the clearest statement of this, lest there be any confusion in our minds, is Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, where Paul writes to the church at Ephesus, it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. So faith is the door. The grace of God comes in through the door of faith, and that is what saves us, not of ourselves. It is a gift of God. It is grace, not by works, so that no one can boast. God does not say to Abraham, you beat those kings up, you took their money, you gave a tenth to me, so now you have righteousness in my sight. He says, no, it's your belief. It's your belief that I'm going to credit to you as righteousness. It's your faith and your trust and your hope in me that I'm going to credit to you as righteousness. And it's the same for us today. It's God's grace plus our faith in Jesus Christ that makes us righteous. Then we obey as a result of our faith out of gratitude for God's grace, not out of fear. Not out of fear that God's going to get us and send us to hell. If we don't, we recognize what has been given to us in the person of Jesus Christ who came from heaven, who lived that perfect sinless life, died that horrifying death with us on His mind, overcame sin and death, was resurrected on the third day, and says, to all who will come to me, who all who will believe in me, to all who will receive me, I give you the right to become children of God. We are no longer slaves to fear. We have the right to become children of God when we put our faith and our trust and our belief in Jesus and Jesus alone. So two weeks ago, we talked about fearing God. And we talked about the fear of the Lord and the reverence and the awe and the respect that that communicates and that fearing God is a firm foundation for all of our lives, that we put our trust and our hope and our faith in Him and Him alone. And today, our bottom line is this, that when you believe, when you fear God, you need not fear anything else. When you fear God, when you reverence God, when you obey God, when you hold Him in high regard, when you have respectful, reverent awe of God, and you put your faith and your hope and your trust and your belief in Him, in Him alone, you need not fear anything else. You need not fear anything else. And so we see this dynamic that we fear God, but we fear not. And the two are connected, inextricably linked, that our fear from God empowers us to not be afraid. And God does not want us terrified of Him or of anything else. He wants us to hold Him in high regard and trust our lives to Him and follow His will and His ways. And so that is a firm foundation. Trusting God, fearing God, so much so that we need not fear anything else. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are not a God who wants us to be terrified and anxious in your presence, but within you come into our presence. When you invade our world, you do so 
with the words fear not, that you reach us as, as a personal God. From your encounters with Abram to the person of Jesus Christ, who came into the world, who came to his very own, they did not believe him, they did not receive him. Yet to all who did, to all who did receive him, to all who did believe in his name, he gave the right to be children of God. Oh, what love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. And so we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would use these moments to drive deep into the foundation of our heart and our soul and our spirit. This truth that if we are in Christ, we need not fear anything else. That we can say, even when the storms of life close in around us, that we belong to you, that you are with us, that you are for us, that you love us, and you will care for us. We love you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.